2: or text Wondery Pod to
3: 500-500. Tonight, on this special edition of 60 Minutes Presents, New Frontiers in Medicine.
4: So excited.
3: We have been following a cutting-edge clinical trial at the National Institutes of Health using gene therapy on a brutally painful disease, sickle cell anemia. You'll hear the surprising results that one day may lead to cures for thousands of other diseases.
5: To see that emerging, not just as hoped for advances, but real data showing cures for people. You just used the curing word. (laughs) You're willing to say that? This looks like a cure.
6: I start seeing the colors and the geometric designs, and then boom, visions began.
7: Visions brought about by the powerful psychedelic drug psilocybin, administered by scientists aimed at helping people suffering from depression, anxiety, and addiction. Do you ever have a day where you wake up and you're like, man, I wish I could have a vodka right now or a beer? Not at all, which is the craziest thing because that was my favorite thing to do. The image on the left shows connections within the brain before psilocybin, on the right, after.
4: Student debt is a crisis. Americans owe $1.5 trillion. The burden for medical students is especially heavy. But now one of the country's top schools has come up with a radical
8: solution. The NYU School of Medicine is now a tuition-free medical school. Saving these students more than $200,000 each... With the hope that one day, if you're dealing with a patient who can't afford to have something done, you might say, it's on me.
1: The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes.
3: There really is no place like home.
1: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
3: Good evening. I'm Dr. John LaPook. Welcome to 60 Minutes Presents. Tonight, on the threshold of a new year, We look ahead to new frontiers in medicine. We explore why some scientists are taking a fresh look at psychedelic drugs and examine how one university is rethinking the costs of medical school. But we begin with what appears to be a breakthrough in gene therapy. Nearly 20 years ago, scientists stunned the world when they announced they had decoded the genes that make up a human being. As we first reported last March, they hope to use that genetic blueprint to advance something called gene therapy, which locates and fixes the genes responsible for different diseases. A clinical trial at the National Institutes of Health is now doing exactly that in an attempt to cure sickle cell anemia, a devastating genetic disease that kills hundreds of thousands of people around the world every year. We spent more than a year following the scientists and patients who, who are ushering in a genetic revolution?
9: So excited.
3: Today's the big day. It's the day after Christmas, 2017, and 27 year old Janelle Stevenson has come with her father and brother from Florida to the National Institutes of Health. Just outside Washington, D.C.
9: Good morning. Good morning.
3: She's one of a small group of patients to receive an infusion containing altered DNA. That's what they look
9: like. <laughs> Merry Christmas to me.
3: <laughs> Best Christmas present ever. Yeah. The clear liquid in the bag contains Janelle's stem cells that have been genetically modified. There are about 500 million
10: in there.
9: Oh, my goodness.
3: (laughs) The hope is the new DNA in the cells will cure Janelle of sickle cell anemia, a brutal disease that causes debilitating pain. At its worst, on a scale of 0 to 10, how bad was your pain?
9: We can go beyond a 10. It's it's terrible. It's horrible. Pain where? Everywhere, as I would... Uh, My back, my shoulders, elbows, arms, legs, even my cheekbones. Just pain.
3: Can you actually describe it?
9: It's a very sharp, like, stabbing, almost feels like bone-crushing pain. feels like someone's kind of constricting your bones and then releasing constantly.
3: Pain from sickle cell can occur anywhere blood circulates. That's because red blood cells, normally donut-shaped, bend into an inflexible sickle shape, causing them to pile up inside blood vessels. The resulting traffic jam prevents the normal delivery of oxygen throughout the body, leading to problems that include bone deterioration, strokes, and organ failure. The gene that causes sickle cell anemia evolved in places like Sub-Saharan Africa because it protects people from malaria. There, millions have the disease, And it's estimated more than 50% of babies born with it die before the age of five. Right on the bone there. In the United States, it affects 100,000 people, mostly African Americans. For Janelle, having the disease as a child often meant spending Christmas in the hospital. As an adult, she struggled through pain to complete college. But keeping a job was tough because something as simple as walking upstairs could trigger a pain crisis. Do you have friends who've died from sickle cell? I do, yes, younger than me. And you've known this your whole life growing up? Right. That you could potentially die early? Right, yes. Did you think you would die early?
9: I did, actually. Um, when I hit about 22, I was like, you know, for sickle cell. I'm kind of middle-aged right now.
3: What are some of the things that you've always wanted to do that you couldn't do?
9: Honestly, everybody laughs at me for this. I just want to run, to be honest.
3: Things that (laughs) most people would take for granted. Just
9: basic things.
3: One of the most cruel parts of the disease, Janelle and other patients have told us, is being accused of faking pain to get narcotics, being labeled a drug seeker. During one trip to the emergency department, when she fell to the floor in pain, a doctor refused to help her.
9: And I'm looking up at her and I'm in tears. I'm I'm doing the best that I can.
3: And you gotta be thinking. I just
9: sometimes I just don't understand. I don't get it. Like
3: Sorry.
9: I'm in so much pain. And you think I just want some morphine. And it just makes me sad that some people just in the medical community just don't get it.
5: So this would be
3: my lab. Yeah. Dr. Francis Collins is director of the National Institutes of Health the largest biomedical research agency in the world. He oversees a nearly $40 billion budget that funds more than 400,000 researchers worldwide.
8: Dr. Collins, please come up to the left.
3: Dr. Collins was head of the Human Genome Project at the NIH in 2000 when he made a landmark announcement. After a decade of work, scientists had finally decoded the genes that make up a human being. Today, we celebrate
5: the revelation of the first draft of the Human Book of Life. When did it all start for you? I got excited about genetics as a first-year medical student. A pediatric geneticist came to teach us about how genetics was relevant to medicine. And he brought patients to class. And one of the first patients he brought was a young man with sickle cell disease who talked about the experience of sickle cell crises and how incredibly painful those are and yet it was all because of one single letter in the dna that is misplaced a t that should have been an a and that was profound you could have all of that happen because of one letter that was misspelled
3: the double helix of dna is made up of billions of pieces of genetic information what dr collins is saying is out of all that it's just one error in the dna code a T that should have been an A that causes sickle cell anemia. Fix that error, and you cure the disease. But figuring out how to do that would take more than 20 years of research and a little serendipity. Dr. Collins was playing in the NIH rock band in 2016 when his bass player, hematologist Dr. John Tisdale, started riffing on an idea...
10: We'd finished setting up and went for a pizza before that. before the gig. At, <laughs> at this point, I, I pitched to Francis that it was really time that we uh, do something definitive for sickle cell disease.
3: In the laboratory, Dr. Tisdale and his collaborators created a gene with the correct spelling. Then, to get that gene into the patient, they used something with a frightening reputation. HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. It turns out... HIV is especially good at transferring DNA into cells. So this shows the process. Here's how it works. The corrected gene, seen here in yellow, is inserted into the HIV virus. Then, bone marrow stem cells are taken from a patient with sickle cell anemia. In the laboratory, those cells are combined with the virus carrying that new DNA.
10: This virus will then find its way to one of those cells and drop off a copy or two of the correctly spelled gene. And then these cells will go back to the patient.
3: If the process works, the stem cells with the correct DNA will start producing healthy red blood cells. I can hear people, our viewers out there, thinking, wait a second. How do you know you're not going to get AIDS from the HIV virus?
10: The short answer is we cut out the bits that cause infection in HIV and we really replace that with the gene that's misspelled in sickle cell disease so that it transfers that instead of the infectious part.
5: The stakes here are enormous. Yes. There's really very little safety net here, right? Make no mistake. We're talking about very cutting-edge research where the certainty about all the outcomes is not entirely there. We can look back at the history of gene therapy and see there have been some tragedies. Deaths. Yes. Yes.
3: In 1999, 18-year-old Jesse Gelsinger received altered DNA to treat a different genetic disease. He died four days later from a massive immune response. And in another trial, two children developed cancer. Janelle Stevenson understands this is a trial with huge risks and no guarantees. This is it. When she arrived at the NIH Clinical Center in December 2017, Janelle asked her brother, Ray, for some help.
9: There goes Ray cutting my hair. Oh, snip.
3: She decided to cut off all her hair rather than watch it fall out from the massive dose of chemotherapy needed to suppress her immune system so her body wouldn't reject the altered stem cells.
9: I don't know how to feel right now. I'm a little emotional, but... I'm okay,
3: it'll grow back. A few days after the chemotherapy, Janelle received the infusion of genetically modified cells.
10: Is it going good now?
6: Yes. It's just a waiting game. Mm-hmm.
3: But the wait was a painful one, not only for Janelle, but also for her father, Ray.
10: You may the a little bit.
3: Who did what little he could as the effects of the chemotherapy kicked in, stripping Janelle's throat and stomach of their protective layers. She was unable to speak for a week and lost 15 pounds. And because having a severely weakened immune system means even a mild cold can turn deadly, Janelle had to stay in the hospital for nearly a month. After moving back to Florida, she returned to the NIH for periodic checkups. These are her red blood cells, and it didn't take long for Dr. Tisdale to notice like something was happening.
10: This is Janelle before any treatment. Right. All across her blood you can see these really abnormal shapes. Uh, this one in particular is shaped like a sickle. This is
3: nine months later, is this is what, is what Dr. Tisdale saw. Not a sickle cell in sight. Was there ever a moment where you saw one of these normal looking smears and thought, is this the right patient?
10: Oh, absolutely. When you're a scientist, you're skeptical all the time. So first thing you do is look and make sure it's that patient. Go grab another one. Make sure it's the same. And we've done all that. And uh, indeed, her blood looks normal.
5: Move. Switch your arms and move. Remember,
3: Janelle used to struggle just to walk up a flight of stairs. And you fall. And a fall like this would have landed her in the hospital. Boom! Yeah. Good job. You did it. Bam. Janelle. (laughs) <laughs> you look amazing. Thank you. I have to say, I was a little nervous when you were thrown and you went down on the mat.
9: It was nothing. It was nothing. My body just felt strong.
3: Tell me about the adjustment that you need to make to go from the old you to the new you.
9: My body, it almost felt like it was, like, itching to do more. And I was like, all right, well, let's go swimming today. Let's go to the gym today. I'm like, all right, my body loves this. I kind of like it because my, I guess all my endorphins started pumping
3: the endorphin high something you had never experienced never
9: experienced before
3: yeah what was going through your head as you were watching janelle being thrown down to the mat
11: i was just saying thank you lord (laughs) thank you for medical signs and thank you for giving her a new life
9: new life indeed
3: (laughs) i never
1: lived before
3: 16 other adults with sickle cell anemia have undergone the same gene therapy as Janelle. So far, all are responding well. Dr. Francis Collins says it will take years to improve the treatment to make it more widely available.
5: Here's another dream there are 7,000 genetic diseases for which we know the precise DNA misspelling. Couldn't this same strategy, this same set of principles, work? For lots of those, maybe someday all of them. You've been working on this for decades. You're at a moment which is significant. To lead the Human Genome Project and to put that foundation in place. And now to see that emerging, not just as hoped-for advances, but real data showing cures for people. You just used the curing word. (laughs) you Are willing to say that? I believe that this looks like a cure i gotta be careful but from every angle that i know how to size this up this looks like a cure
1: what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passions while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
3: For most, psychedelic drugs conjure up images of the 1960s hippies tripping out on LSD or magic mushrooms. But as Anderson Cooper reported earlier this year, these powerful, mind-altering substances are now being studied seriously by scientists inside some of the country's foremost medical research centers. They're being used to treat depression, anxiety, and addiction. The early results are impressive, as are the experiences of the study's volunteers who go on a six-hour, sometimes terrifying, but often life-changing psychedelic journey deep into their own minds.
5: People ask me, do you want to do it again? I said, hell no, I don't <laughs> want to do that again. It
3: was really that bad?
7: Oh,
5: it was awful. The entire time, other than the very end and the very beginning, I was crying.
7: Corrine McLaughlin is talking about the hallucinogenic experience she had here at Johns Hopkins University after being given a large dose of psilocybin the psychedelic agent in Magic Mushrooms, as part of an ongoing clinical trial. We tell people that their
12: experiences may vary from very positive to you know, transcendent and lovely to literally hell realm experiences. Hell realm. As frightening an experience as you have ever had in your life.
7: That's scientist Roland Griffiths. For nearly two decades now, he and his colleague Matthew Johnson have been giving what they call heroic doses of psilocybin to more than 350 volunteers, many struggling with addiction, depression, and anxiety. Can you tell who is going to have a a bad experience, who's going to have a transcendent experience? Our
12: ability to predict that is almost
7: none at all. Really?
6: And about a third will. Um, at, our, at a high dose say that they have something like that, what mm-hmm. folks would call a bad trip. But most of those folks will actually say that that was key to the
4: experience.
7: Corrine McLaughlin was a smoker for 46 years and said she tried everything to quit before being given psilocybin at Johns Hopkins last year. Psilocybin itself is non-addictive. Do you remember what, like, specifically what you were seeing? Or? Yes.
5: The ceiling of this room were Clouds, like heavy rain clouds, and gradually they were lowering, and I thought I was going to suffocate from the clouds.
7: That was more than a year ago. She says she hasn't smoked since. The study she took part in is still ongoing, but in an earlier small study of just 15 long-term smokers, 80% had quit six months after taking psilocybin. That's double the rate of any over-the-counter smoking secession product.
12: They come to a profound shift of worldview, essentially a shift in sense of self. That I think they they see their life in a different way. Their worldview changes, and uh, and they are less identified with that self narrative. Uh, People might use the term ego, and that creates this sense of freedom. And not just with smokers.
7: Beer usually, cocktails usually, vodka sodas, tequila sodas, scotch and sodas. John Kostakopoulos was drinking a staggering 20 cocktails a night and had been warned he was slowly killing himself when he decided to enroll in another psilocybin trial at New York University. During one psilocybin session, he was flooded with powerful feelings and images from his past. Stuff would come up that I haven't thought of since they happened. So old memories that you hadn't even remembered came back to you? I felt, you know, a lot of shame and embarrassment throughout one of the sessions about my drinking and how bad I felt for my parents to put up with all of this. He took psilocybin in 2016. He says he hasn't had a drink since. Do you ever have a day where you wake up and you're like, man, I wish I could have a vodka right now or a beer? Never. Not at all. Not at all, which is the craziest thing because that was my favorite thing to do.
2: I want you to lie back,
7: put the
12: eye shade on, and the headphones, and let the music carry you now.
7: Using psychedelic drugs and therapy is not new. There were hundreds of scientific studies done on a similar compound, LSD, in the 1950s and 60s. It was tested on more than 40,000 people, some in controlled therapeutic settings like this one, but there were also abuses. The U.S. military and CIA experimented with LSD, sometimes without patients' knowledge. Fear over rampant drug use and the spread of the counterculture movement, not to mention Harvard professor Timothy Leary, urging people to turn on, tune in, and drop out, led to a clampdown.
8: This nation
5: faces a major crisis in terms of the increasing use of drugs, particularly
7: among our young people. In 1970, President Richard Nixon signed the Controlled Substances Act, and nearly all scientific research in the U.S. into the effects of psychedelics on people stopped. It wasn't until 2000 that scientist Roland Griffiths won FDA approval to study psilocybin.
12: This whole area of research has been in the deep freeze for 25 or 30 years, and so as a scientist, sometimes I feel like Rip Van Winkle. And once you saw results... Yeah, that red light started flashing. This is extraordinarily interesting. It's unprecedented. And the capacity of the human organism to change, it just was astounding. It sounds like you are endorsing this for everybody. Yeah, let's be really clear on that. We are very aware of the risks and would not recommend uh, that people simply go out and do this.
7: Griffiths and Johnson screen out people with psychotic disorders or with close relatives who have had schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Study volunteers at Johns Hopkins are given weeks of intensive counseling before and after the six-hour psilocybin experience. The psilocybin is given in a carefully controlled setting one to three times. To date, they say, there's not been a single serious adverse outcome.
4: So I'm going to tuck you in.
7: We were told we couldn't record anyone participating in the study while they were on psilocybin because it might impact their experience. But we were shown how it begins without the psilocybin. Questions? Nope. You lay on a couch with a blindfold to shut out distractions. Put the headphones on. And headphones playing a mix of choral and classical music, a psychedelic soundtrack with a trained guide, Mary Casimano, watching over you.
4: Okay, so give me your hand. So I'm going to take your hand.
7: Everything is is done the same way it was for the LSD experiments scientists conducted in the 1950s and 60s. Some of the most dramatic results have been with terminal cancer patients struggling with anxiety and paralyzing
6: depression. I start seeing the colors and the geometric designs, and it's like, oh, this is so cool and how lovely. and, And then, boom, visions began.
7: I Carrie Pappas was very diagnosed very with stage idea. 3 lung cancer in 2013. During her psilocybin um, session, she found to herself to trapped in a nightmare her mind understand. created. An ancient,
6: prehistoric, barren land. And there's these men with pickaxes just slamming on the rocks. So, And
7: this felt absolutely real to you?
6: Absolutely real, I was being shown the truth of reality. Life is meaningless. We have no purpose. And then I look, and I'm still like a witness, a beautiful, shimmering, bright jewel. And then it was sound, and it was booming, 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 right here, right now.
7: That was being said?
6: Yes. You are alive, right here, right now, because that's all you have. And that is my mantra
11: to this day. It seems so implausible to me that a single experience caused by a molecule, right, ingested in your body, could transform your outlook on something as profound as death. That's, That's kind of amazing.
7: Author Michael Pollan wrote about the psilocybin studies in a best-selling book called How to Change Your Mind. As part of his research, he tried psilocybin himself with the help of an underground guide. The kind of things that cancer patients were saying, like, I I touched the face of God, you were skeptical about when you hear phrases like that. Yeah. Yeah.
11: Or love is the most important thing in the universe. When someone tells me that, I was like, yeah, okay. So you don't, you don't go for some of the phrases that no, are No, it makes, gives me the willies as a writer. And I really struggle with that, because during one of my experiences, I came to the earth-shattering conclusion that love is the most important thing in the universe. But it's, that's Hallmark card stuff, right? Mm. And, um, so, and yet, while you were on it and afterward... It was profoundly true. And it is profoundly true, guess what? Um, There's a reason it's on a Hallmark card. There is a reason. And one of the things psychedelics do is they peel away all those essentially protective levels of irony and, and cynicism that we, that we acquire as we get older. And you're back to those kind of, oh my god, I forgot all about love. Pollan said he also experienced what the researchers describe as ego
7: loss or identity loss. The quieting of the constant voice we all have
11: in our heads. I did have this experience of seeing my ego um, burst into a, a little cloud of post-it notes. I know, it sounds crazy. And what are you without an ego? You're, uh,
7: <laughs> you had to be there. <laughs> Researchers believe that sensation of identity loss occurs because psilocybin quiets these two areas of the brain that normally communicate with each other. They're part of a region called the default mode network, and it's especially active when we're thinking about ourselves and our lives.
11: And it's where you connect what happens in your life to the story of who you are. Yeah, we, we, we all see. develop a story uh, right. over time about over time. what our past was like uh, and yeah, who what kind we are. of person we are, how we react, and that the fact is that interesting things happen when the self goes quiet in the brain, uh, including this rewiring that happens. To see
7: that rewiring, Johns Hopkins scientist Matthew Johnson showed us this representational chart of brain activity. The circle on the left shows normal communication between parts of the brain. On the right, what happens on psilocybin? There's an explosion of connections or crosstalk between areas of the brain that don't normally communicate. The difference is just startling. Right. Is that why people are having experiences of seeing you know, repressed memories or past memories or people who have died or... That's what we think. And even the perceptual effects, sometimes
12: the synesthesia, like the, the seeing sound. People
7: see sound? Yeah, sometimes. Well, I don't even know what that means. Right,
11: yeah, it's... it's... <laughs> right. right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe the ego is one character among many in your mind, and you don't necessarily have to listen to that voice that's chattering at you and criticizing you and telling you what to do. And that's very freeing.
7: It was certainly freeing for Carrie Pappas. Though her cancer has now spread to her brain, her crippling anxiety about death is gone.
6: Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I feel like death doesn't frighten me. Living doesn't frighten me. I don't frighten me. This frightens me,
7: but. This interview frightens <laughs> you? But death doesn't? <laughs> no. It turns out most of the 51 cancer patients in the Johns Hopkins study experienced significant decreases in depressed mood and anxiety after trying psilocybin. Two-thirds of them rated their psilocybin sessions as among the most meaningful experiences of their lives. For some, it was on par with the birth of their children.
6: To this day, it evolves in me.
7: It's still alive in you.
6: It's still absolutely alive in me.
7: Does it make you happier?
6: Yeah, and and I don't necessarily use the word happy. Comfortable. Hmm. Like, comfortable. I mean, I've suffered from anxiety my whole life. I'm comfortable. That, to me, okay, I can die. I'm comfortable. I mean, it's huge. It's huge.
1: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
3: Going to medical school today takes more than ambition, good grades in biology and college, and an appetite for hard work. It takes a willingness to incur a crushing amount of debt. Student debt in general is in crisis in this country. All told, borrowers owe $1.5 trillion more than people owe in credit card debt. People have borrowed money to attend medical school for decades, but the scale of the debt has skyrocketed in recent years. The average medical student now graduates with a debt burden as big as a home mortgage. As Leslie Stahl first reported in April, one of America's top medical schools, NYU in New York, has come up with a radical solution.
4: Joseph Babinski. It's a tradition on the very first day of medical school, the so-called white coat ceremony, a rite of passage for 24-year-old Joe Babinski and his 100 classmates at New York University. It's kind of this transition point where you go from being a potential student to a member of the medical community, even if you're at the bottom rung of the ladder still. (laughs) Um, And it's a pretty significant experience. It marks the beginning of your journey, so to say. As he began that journey, Joe was expecting to take on a great burden. How much debt did you expect you'd be taking on? I anticipated taking on about $200,000. I can't imagine starting life with that on your shoulders. But a lot of medical students, a lot of young doctors have that. Most?
13: I would say most. Graduating medical school, 85, 86% of students have debt. DR.
4: EZEKIEL EMANUEL IS is CHAIR OF MEDICAL ETHICS AND HEALTH POLICY AT THE UNIVERSITY OF PENNSYLVANIA. HE SAYS THE PROSPECT OF SO MUCH DEBT PREVENTS MANY PEOPLE WHO COULD BE GREAT DOCTORS FROM EVEN APPLYING TO MEDICAL SCHOOL.
13: MOST OF US THINK THAT IT REALLY DETERS PEOPLE FROM uh, MIDDLE CLASS AND LOWER INCOME FAMILIES. THEY LOOK AT 200,000, IT SEEMS LIKE A HUGE MOUNTAIN TO CLIMB, AND IT GETS SCARY.
4: And it compounds because you're not paying it off.
13: Correct. So and the
4: interest grows, it gets worse, and that's a burden. I uh, would think it, it diverts well, <laughs> attention from medical school as well, if you actually...
13: I think people are stressed by it.
4: As a third-year NYU doctor, med student, Elaine Delion felt that stress from day one. Could your family afford medical school?
14: Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. Are we looking for a cystic fluid?
4: Her family is originally from the Dominican Republic. Her dad is a retired chef. Her mother died years ago. She agonized over her dream of being a doctor because of the cost. How much did you have to borrow for your first year?
14: I borrowed $76,000, and if I were to pay that off in on a 10-year plan, it would be $100,000 by the time I paid it off. Wow. And that's just your first year? That's just my first year. It's unfathomable. Yeah. But I think that ultimately, like, a life of serving is more important to me, and that's really um, what, what, like, cinched it, that I, I needed to pursue this despite the debt that I would be incurring.
4: Elaine's ambition is to be a primary care doctor treating poor people, but she says that the debt burden forced her to consider a different choice.
14: Now, of course, you hear the like prime specialties where you get paid the most, so you hear dermatology, you hear surgery, you hear all of these things. And so it's easy when you're coming in to be like, well, I paid a lot of money to be here. Like, I should really get my money's worth and try to pursue these more lucrative specialties. Even if you're not interested. Exactly. Or, yeah. or at least consider them. Dr. Rafael
4: Rivera is dean of admissions at NYU Medical School. What are the better paying specialties?
15: Generally speaking, some of the surgical specialties tend to pay well. Neurosurgery, uh, you know, orthopedics pays well. Um, The fields that tend to pay a little less are fields like pediatrics and general internal medicine, family medicine, um, and... And
4: those are the doctors we have lacking. We don't have enough of those doctors.
15: By 2030, we'll have a shortage of up to 49,000 primary care docs.
4: That huge shortage, that distortion of the medical profession, is directly linked to the mountains of debt. And on the day of that white coat ceremony last August, NYU decided to do something about it, something dramatic. After all the first year students had filed back to their seats, Ken Langone, chairman of the Board of Trustees, and his wife Elaine let everyone in on a secret.
8: As of this very moment, the NYU School of Medicine is now a tuition-free medical school.
4: Joe Babinski was sitting in the front row without a clue that was coming. And they announced that they are supplying full tuition scholarships for every student. Did you think you heard them right? I took a picture of the slide on my phone because I didn't want them to remove it and take it away. So I was like, I'm I'm documenting that this is happening. (laughs) But did you get it right away? We were there, and there was a sense of, did I hear that right? (laughs) I I still
1: don't think I get it.
4: Sitting a few rows away, Joe's parents, a municipal employee and a retired cop, had a similar, did-he-just-say-what-I-think-he-said reaction.
1: Oh, my God!
4: This was the real-time reaction of another father. Oh my God, no, sucks.
15: Oh. At first, I see students looking around at each other.
4: Did I hear what he said? Yeah.
15: There were there were gasps, there was some quiet, there was some screaming, and then all of a sudden the chant started getting louder and louder, and before you knew it, the, the audience had erupted into cheers of joy.
4: NYU's free tuition applies not just to first year med students but to every current student in every class. They do still have to pay their own room and board, but for these students, it's a gift worth more than $200,000
8: each. And these kids went nuts. And one party he yells out, I told you, you picked the right place. <laughs> Ken Langone made
4: his fortune as a co-founder of Home Depot. He and Elaine donated $100 million toward the free tuition initiative, and he helped raise the additional $350 million needed to make it a reality.
8: Well, that's my job here.
4: To go out and ask other people for well, money? Well, I go
8: out and I look at somebody nice like you and I grab you by your ankles and I shake you. <laughs> the and money when you comes promise out. me there's no more nickels, I turn you right side up. But seriously, <laughs> yeah. I have two jobs here. I'm a cheerleader and I'm a fundraiser.
4: Tell us how this came about.
8: Bob Grossman, when he became dean, I sat him down. I said, all right, boss, what are we going to do? And he said to me, one of the things I would love to have happen is for one day for us to be tuition-free. Said you said that
4: mean? right in the beginning?
8: 11 when he years first ago. came? 11 years ago. Okay. I said, you know what, Bob? Let's do it. And here's the way it works.
4: It took more than a decade, but NYU now has the endowment to offer free tuition to every med student in perpetuity.
8: When we announced it, a mother, a pediatrician came up to me, 30 years out of medical school, and she told me she was still paying off her medical school debt, and she said, this morning when I woke up and I knew I was coming here, she said, I was convinced I would be in debt when I died to help my son become a doctor. These are great people. So we just say, you know what, let's do a weekend to help make it easier for them.
4: Do you think this is going to make you a better doctor?
1: I think, without a doubt, it'll make me a better doctor. Really? How
4: does it affect that?
1: For one, I won't be working while I'm in school. I can focus on learning the medicine and being good at
4: it. And that pressure isn't on your shoulders?
8: There's none. I think about the mindset of the kid saying, somebody did something for me. Now I've got to do something for somebody. Okay? think of that.
4: Yeah.
8: That's a big thing.
4: It is a lot. but NYU's not. no tuition model replaces what had been a patchwork system of scholarships and financial aid. Now, every med student is on full scholarship with absolutely no strings attached. This model says anybody who comes to NYU medical school will come tuition free right. as opposed to just the kids who need the money.
13: I like the uh, a model, which I call uh, forgivable loans, that you basically say to every student, we're learning you all of medical school, and if you go into primary care or one of these other specialties that needs doctors, or you go practice in a rural community, like in South Dakota, or you go into an inner city community that's underserved, we're going to forgive your loan. On the other hand, you decide you want to go into one of those lucrative uh, specialties, ophthalmology or dermatology or orthopedics you're going to have to pay it back with interest. And I think that's a more effective way of getting the goals society wants than giving everyone uh, tuition-free.
4: Whatever the model, changing the face of the medical profession is a huge challenge. Consider this. There are no more African-American men in medical school today than there were 40 years ago. Forty years. Right now, more than half of all medical students come from the richest 20% of American families, only about 5% from the poorest 20. This means that wealthy areas have lots of doctors and lower-income areas don't. I know of so many communities in poor areas that don't have a doctor at all. Is there anything in this program that encourages people to go out there
15: If you are from a rural background, you do tend to go back to practice in a rural setting more often than people who are not from a rural background. If you are from an underrepresented minority group, similarly, you also tend to go back to inner-city underserved areas.
4: Since the announcement, applications to
14: NYU have boomed, especially from minorities. I think just the idea that a lot of people who come from backgrounds like mine, low-income, without parents who are able to afford um, medical school, I think that it's a huge draw. Um, is, and I think that it's, it's a needed draw for the patient population that's served by NYU students. I think that there's a lot of folks at Bellevue where I work, this is just anecdotal, but I would say at least 60 percent of the patients are Latinos. And, and this is an excellent way to draw the right people to the right institution. How's your Spanish? Very good. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So they can, you can really communicate
4: yeah. with them. Elaine DeLeon was in the final year of an accelerated three-year med school program, one year less than the norm. But when we saw her on the day of the announcement...
14: You're not going to believe the news that just came out.
4: ...calling her dad to give him the news, you wouldn't know
14: she was saving just one year of tuition. Already I felt like one of the luckiest medical students in the country because I am in the three-year program. I am already decided on primary care. I'm already going into this residency program here. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, and by the way, like your last year is free. And it's like, uh, it was just this incredible feeling of freedom.
4: So do you think all the other medical schools are going to at least try one model or another of free tuition?
13: Absolutely. They all will. I mean, I think almost all of the medical schools had been driving to that before NYU uh, made its announcement, uh, and I think they will redouble their efforts. Uh, this has been a issue that most deans of medical schools are passionate about.
4: They'd better be, because otherwise, those deans at Harvard and Hopkins and Stanford are likely to see the very best medical students attending NYU for free.
8: you got a right to push and say why didn't you make kids who could afford to pay pay? Because we really wanted to be blind in terms of the kids coming here, and we want them to know that they owe us nothing. But one day, if you're dealing with a patient who can't afford to have something done, you might say, it's on me. Pass it on.
3: I'm John LaPook. We'll be back next year with a brand new edition of 60 Minutes. Happy New Year.
0: Are you a fan of 60 Minutes? You can represent the most watched series on television with shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and more at ParamountShop.com. You can take 20% off with code MINUTES20. That's 20% off at checkout on all 60 Minutes products with code MINUTES20 at ParamountShop.com.
6: Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for
1: shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas